borrowed this. Uh, our brother Christian had used this uh, a little while ago. It's the only overhead we're going to have, but it's a great tool as we talk about some of this to see where it fits in, in sequen sequential time. So just note that we'll be going back to that uh, as necessary. Um, as uh, and indicated, what we're going to do uh, this morning and also tonight and then perhaps some uh, Wednesday night sessions is do a, a prophecy overview. And I have a purpose for this um, that I talked to uh, the elders about is mainly to give you all a framework, okay, that we all need to help build your knowledge of this so that you can confidently study it for yourselves. Uh, I think a lot of people get a little, uh, I would say, overwhelmed sometimes by prophecy, uh, rightly so. I know my wife has expressed to me, she, she likes to see, like, how does it all fit? And I was even talking to Brother David Gill. There's a little bit of apprehension of how to approach this. And I don't think that it's impossible. And I think what we're going to do is give you some foundations that then you can build on and be a Berean. You know, search the scriptures to see these things for yourselves. Um, so that's what we're going to try to do. Now, why should we study this? Uh, Take a look at Revelation 1 3. Revelation 1 3. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. We have a special blessing if we read this book, study it, and understand it. That's enough. We don't really need another reason, but it is a very good reason. I think there are a few more. 1 John 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope, that very hope, everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. There is a purifying aspect to this. As you study it and you understand it, it gives you that hope that purifies your life today. That's what God's saying. Another very good reason to warn the lost. Okay, I've had opportunities. I, I remember telling a Malcolm a story of one of my partners at my office who was interested somehow in the Antichrist. And we spent a, a 15 minutes walking to a restaurant. And because I had some knowledge of this book, I was able to talk to him about the future and the scriptural basis for it. He's an unbeliever. You don't know what God can do with that, but the accuracy of this word, okay, is a warning. And you're going to find it's a warning throughout the entire book of Revelation. So we're here to understand this so we can warn the lost. And finally, I think it's an important aspect to note that um, there's a warning given about this book. So let's go to the end for a minute. Let's go to the very end and let's take a look at Revelation 22, 18 and 19. 
the warning. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if, and if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. This is severe. Uh, you don't want to get this wrong. And the word of God says that we are to be warned. And if we don't heed that warning, uh, there are consequences. Um, the other thing I think it helps us do is if we see people distorting this book, it should make us wary of their other teaching. It helps to expose false teachers. That being said, uh, before we jump in, I think there's another framework that's going to help you. It's helped me. Within prophecy, it could be stated that there are three levels of understanding. We're going to concentrate 99% of our time on the first one. The first level of understanding is, I believe that within the book of Daniel, the book of Revelation, and the writings in the New Testament, there are things which are undisputable, indisputable, uh, and they are absolute truth in Scripture. Let me give you some examples, all right? A future seven-year tribulation period. I don't think that you can deny that from Scripture. A future thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. That's clear in Scripture. The rapture of the church, absolutely clear in Scripture. And the existence and coming of a future antichrist, a person, a man. Those are things we're going to find are absolutely clear and it can't be disputed. The second level would be things that are clearly implied from Scripture that we believe are the best interpretations but that you can't say definitively that they are, there's a verse that, that supports that exact belief. And I would say that's the precise timing of the rapture. We believe that it's coming before all the wrath because of verses that clearly state we're not children of wrath. But to state that we can say precisely where it exactly hits at this earlier point, we don't have a verse to tell us that. The third thing are things we just don't know yet. And my best example, and we've heard about this in movies and uh, people have written about it and tried to decipher it, the number 666. We know that that relates to the Antichrist and there's a connection there. But you can't say for sure at this point in history what that number really means. I've never heard anyone explain it definitively and I don't think there right now is a definitive answer. That doesn't mean you can't think about it, but you have to distinguish between things that are absolutely locked in truth and things that we don't know yet. That's where people get messed up. They start to put them in the blender and they don't know which is which. We're going to try to avoid that. All right? So we're going to focus on level one, truth, that's clear and absolute. So where do we start? Revelation 1.1? No. We don't start there. And there's a good reason for that. We start in the book of Daniel. And the reason we start in the book of Daniel is because the first time this comprehensive system is laid out is in the book of Daniel. It's not in the book of Revelation. We're going to study the book of Revelation, but we're going to go the way God went. So we need to start in Daniel 9. So I'd like everyone to go to Daniel 9. Get ready, because that's where we're going to be. As you're getting there, I would like to make a brief comment about the rapture. We are going to fully discuss the rapture in complete depth, but not yet. And the reason not yet is because, remember, it's a mystery revealed 
by Paul. What is a mystery? A mystery is something heretofore that had not yet been revealed. So one another, another mystery that, that's discussed in the New Testament is the mystery of the combination of Jews and Gentiles in faith in Christ. That was not in view in the book of Daniel, nor was the rapture. They weren't revealed. So we're going to take them in the order of how they were revealed, and then when they're revealed, overlay them, and it'll be much clearer, I think. You'll be the judge of that. So, Daniel 9. Why do we have Daniel 9? Daniel 9 is a response to a prayer. And the prayer was Daniel's prayer. We all know the story of Daniel. A godly man uh, didn't eat the king's food, uh, stood, for, stood for the truth. Uh, we know all those stories, the lion's den. But this story about Daniel is unique in that God gave him things that went well beyond what he was asking for. Daniel asked some specific questions. Let's take a look at Daniel 9. And let's look at part of Daniel's prayer. Daniel starts his prayer, uh, really Daniel 9.1. The things that Daniel is looking for and the things that concern Daniel are threefold in this prayer. We're going to look at it. He, he's asking God specifically, what's going to happen to my people? What's going to happen to my city? And what's going to happen to my sanctuary? And the re why is Daniel asking this question? Daniel is asking this question because he knows something about the Jewish people. And what he knows is the period of time for their captivity in Babylon should be coming to an end. Jeremiah 25, 11, and 12 indicated that there was going to be this period of captivity. We all know about it. That was why Daniel was in Babylon, right? He was taken there. He knows it's about to come to an end, and he's getting concerned about it. So he seeks God, and he wants to know, well, what is going to happen? What is going to happen to my people, my city, and my sanctuary? And his prayer goes from verses 1 through 19 of chapter 9. And let's just look at 15, because that's really the apex of the prayer. And he says, And now, O Lord, who have brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself, as it is this day. We have sinned. We have been wicked, O Lord, in accordance with your righteous acts. Let now your anger and your wrath turn away from your holy city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. For because of our sins and iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a reproach to those around us. So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to seek his supplications. And for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O oh my God, incline your ear, open your eyes, and see our desolations in the city which is called by your name, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and take action. For your sake, O oh my God, do not delay, because your city and your people are called by your name. The answer. Verse 20. 
Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my supplication before the Lord, my God, in behalf of the holy mountain of my God, while I was still speaking in prayer, then the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering. He gave me instruction and talked with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you under insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. So give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. Three verses follow this. These three verses I kind of consider to be the bedrock of prophecy. They're the, in law, I, I, a lawyer, I make an analogy, it's like the Constitution. The Constitution is our foundational law. Well, then we have statutory law and all the other laws that came after it. But this is the, the foundational point. If you get this and you understand this, you will be able to build on it and it will probably provide you with more confidence to understand what the Book of, Re Book of Revelation means and what Paul is talking about in specific areas. So let's go. Daniel, 20, uh, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Before we start, I would suggest to you, God was giving Daniel way more than he wanted. He wanted to know about the here and the now. He wanted to know what's going to happen now. And God was about to tell him, I'm going to tell you everything about the relational future history of your people Israel with their God. Everything. From beginning now until, really, the millennial kingdom. He didn't know that was coming, and he still didn't fully understand it, most likely, when he died. Verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be, 60, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat even in times of distress. Then, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the Prince who is to come will destroy the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. That's the future history of Israel in three verses. And what we're going to find now uh, is packed in there is so much about the future, and it is reiterated throughout the book of Revelation over and over again. But it's not easy. So you're going to have to think, right? You're really going to have to think. And the verses that I have on that list will help you as later on you take a look at these things and say, okay, wait, wait, where was that? Those 42 months, those, 
those 1260 days because math is really going to matter now. You thought it, you thought you kind of didn't like it when you were in school. It never goes away. Ever. It never goes away. So we're going to have to do some math. And the most interesting thing about it is this, this is probably some of the most precise prophecy that God gave about not only the coming of the, uh, Jesus the first time, but also his second coming. So let's take a look at it. The term weeks, okay, in Hebrew it's the term Shabuwa, okay. It is also simply used to mean a period of seven, all right. And biblical scholars, uh, I agree with them, uh, have, have, have made a determination that, that the message being given here, when it talks about a total of 77s, it's 70 periods of seven years, and it's a total of 490 years. So your first number that you got to worry about is 490 years, because he's saying your people have been given 490 years of time for me to complete what I must complete with them. And what did he say he would do for them? He would give them a kingdom. He would give them a kingdom. He would give them a Messiah who rules that kingdom. He's still going to do that. So you start with the initial period, which is called the 69 sevens, or the, it's, it's, it's phrased 62 and a seven, but if you add them, there's 69. So you go, well, let's take a look at these first 69 sevens or 69 weeks. What does it say? There's a triggering point, right? Something happens first. And what does it say uh, the triggering point is? So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and re rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be six, seven weeks and 62 weeks. There's a decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And if you look back in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, the consensus would be that this is the decree that this is referring to. Nehemiah 2, 1 through 8. Somebody read that for me. I'm going to. I'm having. Does anyone have that? Yes. It came to pass in the month Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. And I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, thou wouldest send me to Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. The king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, How long shall your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. Moreover, I said to the king, If it pleased the king, let letters be given to the governor, governors beyond the river, that they may 
gave me over till I come unto Judah, and a letter unto Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the palace, which appertain to the house, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall enter into. And the king granted me according to the good hand of my God upon me. Start the stopwatch. The decree is issued, and it is believed that this was 445 B.C., in the month that they called Nisan. They had different periods of time. Uh, calculations have been made by people who really love math. One of them is named Sir Robert Anderson. Another is named Dr. Harold Hayner. And I can get you some information on that. Others have done this as well. But if you start from that time period and you calculate 69 sevens, or 483 years, you get 173,880 days. The calculation has been made that if you go forward in history using a 360-day calendar, you get to what they call the 9th of Nisan in AD 30, Palm Sunday. Now, what's the significance of Palm Sunday? Well, go back to Daniel 9 now. Go back to Daniel 9. It says in verse 25, after the 62 and the seven sevens, it says and that is when we have Messiah the Prince. Now, Jesus obviously was born before Palm Sunday, but the, the, the time that he was presented as the king, as the Messiah, and quickly rejected was that time, Palm Sunday. Now, I, I'm not certain that these calculations are absolutely accurate, but think about it. It had to be within that period of time. Give, give 50 years on either end, this prophecy was shooting right to the time of Christ, right? So we are clearly being thrust into the time of Christ from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Only God can make that prediction. So now we know where we are. We are at the time of Christ. What is the next thing that it says in Daniel 9? Okay. Then after the 62 weeks, which is really after the 7 and the 62, the 69th week, okay, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. What is that? Well, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Okay. It says... He will be cut off and have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the sanctuary. Well, after Jesus was killed and resurrected in 70 AD, what happened to the temple? It was destroyed. It was destroyed by Rome. It's a very important point. We'll find out later because it's not only connecting Rome to this, but it's telling you about another person. The first time we've seen him, and are introduced to him, he is the prince who is to come. And his people somehow are connected to Rome. I don't know exactly how. The theory has been that perhaps there's Roman ancestry for the Antichrist, or that he comes from that region. That is something we don't know for sure, but there is some kind of connection. It goes on then to say, after the destruction of the temple, something interesting happens in verse 27. 
that we're going to have to spend some time on. The very next thing it says is, and he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Who will? Who will do that? The context would make it clear. He is the prince who is to come. The prince who is to come makes a covenant with the many for one week. We are now at the final week. How did we get there? What happened to the thousands of years in between? We have a question that we need to address, all right? And I would suggest that where we're about to go helps us answer that question. But remember, the overriding principle of this book, who was Daniel praying for? His people. Who are his people? The Jews, okay? Don't ever forget that when you're studying this. If you lose sight of that, you will get lost. Because the book of, uh, book of Daniel is clearly designed to tell the people of Israel their relational history with their God and with their Messiah. And when it is shown in that light, it is much easier to understand. So now, let's take a look at the gap. All right? If you look at what we just read from verse 26 to 27, we went from the destruction of Jerusalem to a discussion of the Antichrist and a covenant made at the beginning of the final week. Well, that final week, we will find out, and it is drilled into us throughout the book of Revelation and elsewhere, is the tribulation. All right? Daniel was talking about that. So how do we get from Jesus' death and resurrection to that period of time? The answer is the church. All right? Now we enter the picture. What is it? Let's look at Romans 11, 25, and 26. Let me read it. This is Paul talking about the Gentiles and how their salvation relates to the Jews. And what word does he use? For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery. The mystery, that's something new. The mystery is that there is a church, that God's redeeming someone other than the Jews. This was never in view. Daniel would never have conceived of this in his wildest dreams. He wasn't asking about it. This is new. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob, this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. We're being told two things. There's a time of the Gentiles. The salvation process right now is primarily happening with non-Jews. I think we can all understand that. We look around the world, Jews are being saved. That's great, but a small number. Certainly not all Israel is being saved, right? Right now is the time of the Gentiles. Well, that time period was not in view in the book of Daniel, 
and God didn't reveal one thing about it. What he did say is, as I relate to you, Israel, this is what you need to know. So right now, the nation of Israel, they're not relating to their God. Okay? There is one mediator, and it's Jesus Christ. If a Jew prays today, are they using that mediator? No. Okay? The God that they're praying to can't be hearing them. It goes against all of Scripture until they call on the name of their Messiah. So he's saying, this is the time of the Gentiles. I'm not done with you. Your, seventh, your 70th week is coming. But this period of time, this gap, is something that needs to be understood to fully understand the rest of the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. I, I think it's hard and that th you do hear people debating the, 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 the validity of that, but when you take scripture all together, I don't see another way. I don't see another way. So, we have this gap. It's the time of the Gentiles. The very next thing that happens after the time of the Gentiles is over is Daniel's 70th week. And everyone wants to know, when does the tribulation start, right? Because we kind of are looking at that and thinking that's a, a scary thing. It tells us when it starts. Go back to Daniel 9. Back to verse 27. We know that the he is the prince who is to come, the coming Antichrist. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. It appears that the tribulation begins with an agreement or a covenant with the many. Now, I don't know who the many is. There's speculation here, and it would make sense, but I you can't be dogmatic about it, that one of the things the Middle East has been looking for for thousands of years is peace. In the beginning of the book of Revelation, we will talk about the false peace. It's there. It's definitive. Who creates the false peace? We believe that this is really one of the works of the Antichrist. So a covenant is always viewed uh, as an agreement, and it could be viewed as a, a peace treaty between or among the many, all the countries that surround Israel. There's not just one, there's lots of them, and they're all sitting there waiting to attack this country. Well, if you have someone show up who's never done this before and creates peace, in quotes, okay, and he makes an agreement with all the nations, let's let Israel and let's let all the Muslims and all the other religions that are there, we're all good. We got a deal. You know, you can have your temple, and I've been there. The place of the temple, okay, that, that used to stand looks like a parking lot. The Dome of the Rock Mosque is not on top of the place where the temple stood. It could be rebuilt without ripping down the mosque. So he does it, maybe, and he makes an agreement. But it's an agreement that starts this period of time. So we have that. What's the next trigger point? comes right away, okay? But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate. 
even till a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. All right, let's go to our chart. Where are we? We're right here. In the middle of the week. He does something. Jesus talked about it. He talked about it in, in Matthew 24. We're going to talk about that this evening. When, when, when he gave the dis discussion of the, of the future of, of, uh, of the end times from his perspective, this middle of the week is when this person, this Antichrist, goes in and desecrates the temple. It's clear it happens at the very middle. And the numbers that we're going to see further in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation, will definitively show you that this event is a triggering point for what they call the Great Tribulation, the second three and a half years, when the wrath of God is appointed, is poured out, all right? And also, Satan, it says, knows he has very little time left. You really have the framework right now to go forward and understand the book of Revelation uh, in, a, in a good bit of clarity. I'm not saying perfectly. Because none of us are ever going to get there. But this framework is really your foundation. So what we'll do tonight is we will go forward. We'll now dig into the book. And we're not going to start at chapter 1. I'll, tell, I'll give you a little hint. You want some homework? Ready? Read chapter 12. Read it and then reread it. Because that's where we're going. That is another great tool to understand how all this fits together. All right, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, we just thank you for your truth. We thank you that uh, you've revealed to us what you're going to do. And we love to study it. We ask for your guidance, your uh, wisdom. Uh, give us endurance and help us not to be lazy. Uh, go with us. Uh, bring us back safely tonight. And we thank you in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, amen.